In this new year, we're going to start a new series. And the new series is a series about what are called covenants. Covenants. Uh, how is the Old Testament structure? How are we to get a grasp on the Old Testament? Some of you have been reading the Old Testament for decades. Uh, for some of you, it's still a, a large, well, it's a large book for all of us, but a large and intimidating book, and you're not sure how to get your hands around it. But uh, the idea of covenant provides us with handles so that we can understand the Old Testament, what it's about, and also understand it in relationship with the New Testament. So what we're going to be doing for the next, I think, six weeks is looking at covenants that God has established. And we're starting back at the beginning uh, in the days of creation and thereafter. So we're in Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 15 to the end of the chapter, verse 25. Uh, but we'll be focusing particularly on verses 16 and 17, and you will be helped if you have a Bible in front of you. Genesis 2, 15 to 25, hear the word of the Lord. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the, uh, every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. And we're not ashamed. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Some relationships, or we should say many relationships, don't require any sort of specific stipulations. For example, when we form friendships, we don't sit down with a contract that we ask each other to sign in order to be each other's friend, do we? Or if we are schoolmates or classmates or co-workers or neighbors, there are many relationships that are, we could say, casual relationships, although they can get very deep, but they're not regulated by uh, specific rules and norms and guidelines. Uh, other than the unofficial ones that our society always recognizes. Other relationships, however, are more permanent and more serious. And the more serious and the more permanent the relationship, the more official stipulation we put to it. The most obvious one is marriage. And we talk about the uh, marriage contract and our, our governments issue marriage licenses. And it, it has stipulations there, and we make promises uh, to each other when we get married. Uh, also, 
We have government officials. They make solemn promises and sign documents. Church members are baptized and received officially into the membership of the church. Naturalized citizens study and then they take an oath of allegiance and they're given a certificate of naturalization. Uh, and employers and employees, uh, uh, buyers and sellers, even though that's not a permanent relationship, it's an official relationship, and so there's stipulations. And we could call these contracts, we could call these pacts, uh, or we could use a word that we find in the Bible. And we find this word in the Bible sometimes to describe relationships among human beings. But we often find this word to describe the most important a relationship of all. And that's the relationship between God and human beings. And we find that the, this relationship between God and human beings, the most important and long-lasting, in fact, eternal relationship that we can have, is regulated, is guided by what we find in Bibles called a covenant. A covenant. And we're going to be looking at a series of covenants throughout the Old Testament, all of them pointing to the New Testament. And so what we will do is, is get an idea of, of how this all fits together, and we will also um, understand more how to relate to God. That's where the rubber meets the road. How can we relate to God? And this might be something of a difficulty for us Westerners, because we have this idea that, well, I'm going to relate to God how I want to relate to God. I'm going to come to Him according to my terms. And he should, of course, accept the way that I come to him. I don't know if that's just Western or if that's human. But in fact, it's the opposite, remembering who God is and who we are, that he tells us how we're going to come to him, how we're going to relate to him. Now, the good thing about that is that his terms are always better than the ones that we could ever come up with on our own. So uh, we will find that the way he arranges these covenants is even better than anything that we can imagine. Now, here we're looking at... The, the first instance of what we're calling a covenant. And we're going to focus on verses 16 and 17, the question of the knowledge of the tree of good, uh, I'm sorry, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to focus on that, that test uh, about that tree. But before we do that, we should look at the provisions that God had made. Because this test is in the context of abundant goodness of God that he has already poured out unimaginable blessings on, on humans. And then in the light of that, we have this, this test case. What are some of the, the institutions, uh, the gifts that God has given here? And by the way, this is interesting because the gifts that God gave at creation are these institutions that God set up at creation still exist to this day in all human societies. Now, they've been fractured, they've been broken, they don't work the way they, are, they were supposed to work. But it's, it's interesting that all human societies continue to practice these institutions that God has established. Well, what are they? The first one is work. Uh, it's, I'm not actually taking these in order, but if you look at verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, this word keep could be translated guard, because there's a recognition here, at least an indirect recognition, that there is, a, there is evil already in the universe. How that came about, nobody knows. But there's already something that is nefarious and evil, and the, the humans are appointed to work the creation, but they're also appointed to guard it from any threats that might come to it. And we see that the reason they were to work, we'll go back to chapter 1, 
um, in verse 28, we see the purpose of their work. And God blessed them, and He said, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Why were humans to work? They were to work in order to have dominion over the earth. Why dominion? How did God create humans? He created humans in His image. God has what over the universe? Dominion. And so, He created us in His image, and He enables us to reflect what He's like. That's what it means to be His image. We reflect what He's like. And He says, I have dominion over all things, created all things by the word of my power, and now I'm putting them in your control that you might exercise dominion over these things for my glory. That was the original purpose of work. To show what God is like. To exercise dominion in His name and to show forth His glory. Now, work later... By the way, it's interesting, if you read the first couple chapters, there doesn't seem to be a real close connection between working and eating. Because God says, I'll give you all this for food. You have all this for food, and it's not, uh, it's not necessarily because they work for it. It's a gift of God, the eating. But later we find, after things go awry in chapter 3, we find that eating and working go together. And if you don't work, you don't eat. And so now work becomes arduous, work becomes difficult, work becomes frustrating. But in the beginning, it was in order to exercise dominion uh, for the glory of God. Now, the other gift that God gave us along with work is rest. Uh, in chapter 2, we didn't read this yet, but in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it says, And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh seventh day from all of his work that he has done he had done so god blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it god rested from all his work that he had done in creation and so here as a creation ordinance god says work 6 days and rest 1 day why we're his image what did he do he created in 6 days and then he rested on the seventh day so this is built into creation this pattern of working and resting Later in the Old Testament, this seventh day is defined as what we would call Saturday, the Sabbath day. It's not named here at the beginning which day of the week it was. It was the seventh day, but later it's called Saturday. It's the Sabbath day, and that is recognized uh, for the Israelites all through the Old Testament. But then we get something interesting in the New Testament. Uh, It's not explicitly stated anywhere, but we see this shift. And there are little suggestions in the New Testament that the Christians began meeting not on the seventh day, but they began holding their worship services on the first day of the week. And we can surmise that that was because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, and because the Holy Spirit was sent on the first day of the week at that day of Pentecost and and set up the church, constituted the church as a spiritual uh, people full of the Holy Spirit. Now, um, this idea of working and resting, this this pattern of working six days, resting one day, uh, is from the creation and it's taken different manifestations, Old Testament, New Testament. And it's strange that um, many have trouble doing this. Many of us have trouble keeping a a healthy pattern of work and rest. And it's strange because we actually work a lot less than. We may feel like we work all the time, but we actually work 
a lot less than our forebears did. A hundred years ago, the work week was, on average, about twice as long as it is now. Uh, and also, they did work the six days, and now uh, we have more common a five-day work week. And so if anybody should be able to set aside time for rest and time for worship, it should be, uh, it should be we in our situation. So what do we have? First two institutions are work and Rest. And then we have two other institutions. We have marriage, and we have a related institution, which is the family. Uh, we have the creation of the, the man. We have the creation of the woman. And um, then we have the, the discussion of the institution of marriage. I'm not going to say a lot about that. I did actually preached on this, I think it was last year, or maybe it was the first, uh, first year we were going uh, on the institution of marriage. But just notice that how marriage works, how the creation of the woman feeds into marriage. Because what happens in the, in the description of the creation of the woman? She is taken different from every other creature up to this point. Everyone else is taken out of dirt, the dust, and she is taken out of the man. So her body is separated from the man's body. And immediately after that, we find the description of marriage. And the description of marriage is, oh, by the way, when, when Adam sees uh, Eve, for the first time, he, he composes some love poetry, uh, some romantic poetry, first example we have of this. And what does he recognize? He recognizes that she's of his stuff. She's of his body. She says, he says, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. And that wordplay works in English as well. Woman because she was taken out of man of the same substance. Therefore, it says, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Again, so you see how this works. In the creation, their bodies were separated, and then there is this mutual attraction, and they bring their bodies back together in the institution of marriage. So it's a beautiful picture of coming apart in the creation and coming back together in marriage. And when you have a man and a woman who come back and unite themselves together uh, in body, what happens? Family. Family. And that goes back to what we read in chapter 1. Verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Well, the, the way to do that, to fill the earth, was to fill the earth with people like you. And the way to do that was to bring ourselves back together in the institution of marriage. Um, all of these, as I said, have been distorted. None of them work like we would like for them to work. They, they become broken and they become, uh, instead of, constant sources of blessing, they've become become challenges, haven't they? Working and resting and marriage and family. And yet they persist. And this is remarkable. They persist in all human societies because they're hardwired into creation. And uh, they are able to be redeemed. That's uh, for another time. But they're able to be redeemed and brought back, not to their perfection, but brought back closer to God's original plan for them. Now that's, that's the context here. God has poured out these blessings on humans. And now we have the test. Now we have the test. Verses 16 and 17, this famous, uh, famous section. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Uh, there's a there's a Hebrew way of expressing things here. It says, "Eating you shall eat, 
And then later it says, dying you shall die. So it's very emphatic here. Now what's the nature of the test? As I said, the test is in the light of God's abundant provision for food. If, uh, if you look at verse 16, he says, Surely eat of every tree of the garden. So this is not an unreasonable restriction. It's not affecting their, their diet in the least. He's already given them abundant food. The restriction is, is we could say, very minimal. Uh, it wouldn't affect their, their lifestyle or their health or their nutrition in the least. Another aspect of this is it's in the light of an amazing amount of freedom that God has given the humans. Uh, he has put them in charge. And he has said, you're in charge here. You are my managers. You do uh, what you're called to do, and you make decisions about that. An amazing amount of autonomy, amazing amount of, of, amount of freedom. For example, the animals. The example of the animals is interesting, because let's just use our imagination a little bit here, and Adam comes across uh, a giraffe. And you might think his question would be, God, what is this? What's this called? And it's interesting that God would turn it around to him and say, Adam, you tell me. That's, that's in your court. I, I'm giving you the freedom to tell me and everyone else for all of history what this is. Can you imagine that kind of power? That kind of authority? That kind of, of freedom? So, when we look at this test, we ought to see it in, in the light of God's abundant provision and also, also His abundant provision of freedom. Now, about the tree itself, there was apparently nothing, nothing different about this tree. It wasn't a poison tree. It wasn't a rotten tree. It was a tree just like every other tree. And later we learn in chapter 3 that it was good for food and it was beautiful, just like every other tree in the garden. So it looks like there was nothing at all different about this tree. In other words, we could say that this was an arbitrary choice. It wasn't that this tree was magic or special in and of itself. God chose it uh, in order to set it aside for this test. And the fact that it was just like every other tree points to the nature of the test. What is it that makes this tree different from every other tree? The only thing, the only thing that makes it different from every other tree is because God said it was. That's the only thing. The only reason that humans should treat this tree any different than any other tree is because God told them to. Now we see the nature of the, the test, don't we? The question is, will you obey God because He said to? Will you obey God not because there's some external compulsion or some sufficient reason to convince you uh, by the nature of the test that this is a good thing to do, but will you obey God because He's God and you're His image? You're His, you are His Creature. The alternative was to exercise autonomy. I think I used that word already. I shouldn't have used it because autonomy is to be a law unto yourself. They had freedom, but they were not to be autonomous, a law unto themselves. But the test was, will you submit to God's word or will you be a law unto yourself? Will you try to be autonomous without regard for what God has said? 
This is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because through it, God teaches what good and evil are. And uh, he teaches it. By the way, the, the theologians and Bible scholars debate. Was he trying to teach them the knowledge of good and evil through eating the tree, eating of the tree, or not eating, eating of the tree? And I think the answer is both. Because either way, they learn about good and evil. If they obey God, they learn that what's good is to obey God, and what's evil is to disobey God. They know that, because He's already put that before them. If they eat of the tree, they know the same thing. They, they know what it is to, uh, to disobey God, and that's evil, and to obey God, that's good. But now there's an added, uh, added factor to it, They know evil from the inside. They will have experienced it personally. But either way, they are taught the concept of good and evil. Now, what are the effects of this test? Verse 17. He says, In the day you eat of it, dying you shall die. Only the negative outcome is mentioned here. The negative outcome is certain death upon disobedience. What is death? What does death involve? Death involves mortality. Death involves separation from God. And death involves physical dissolution of our bodies. And we find here, if we keep reading the story, that as you know, they did disobey and immediately became mortal. And immediately their relationship with God was fractured and they were separated from God. And eventually their bodies were dissolved as well and returned to the dust from which they were taken. That's the negative side. The positive side of this arrangement is implied. What would happen if they obey? If they disobey, they would die. If they would obey, by implication, what would happen? They would live. So here we have the other side, the flip side that's implied. Eternal life upon perfect obedience to God's command. Now, for this reason, this, re- this relationship here is called one of two things in, the th- in theology. Uh, it's called the covenant of life, because it's the promise of life, but it's also called the covenant of works. The covenant of works. Why the covenant of works? Because what did they have to do to be confirmed in life? They had to obey. Uh, their works were the, the way that they would have eternal life. Now, some theologians dispute whether or not we should call it a covenant because the word covenant doesn't appear here. Next week, we will find the very first instance of the word covenant in the Bible. But there's a curious, a curious um, aspect of it that convinces me and, and many others that this is actually a covenant. And that is that it keeps going. That this is actually something that is assumed throughout the rest of the Bible. Not just assumed, but it is, it is positively stated. For example, uh, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, in the Old Testament, it says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. What's the arrangement? Do God's commands, and what will you do? You will have life. Interestingly, in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 10, somebody asked Jesus this question. Because this is the big question, isn't it? How can I live? 
How can I have eternal life? In this, uh, in chapter 10, verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. What do we have there? We have once again the covenant of life or the covenant of works. Life based on doing. Um, Also, it's interesting that most religions, or perhaps all religions, assume this. And most people I meet assume this. This is one of the, the, the things that convinces me most that this really was a covenant that is perpetual. Because whenever I talk to people and I ask them, how do you, how do you expect to have life? How do you expect to have eternal life? How do you expect to be with God? How do you expect to be in heaven after you die? Their answer to me is almost always the covenant of life. The covenant of works. They say, well, I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to be sincere. I'm trying to be obedient. I try to keep these commandments. I try to do that. It seems like this this arrangement of the covenant of works or the covenant of life is hardwired into humanity. From where did that come? Well, it was instituted in the beginning. Also, also, uh, there's something else that, that convinces me that this is a perpetual covenant, and that's this. It was told to the original humans, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Dying, you shall die. But if we keep reading the Old Testament, what do we find out about everyone who came after them? They died as well. Now, that's curious, because it was just told to the original ones, and it was told that they would die. And then we keep reading, and if you read Genesis, it's kind of depressing, and it says, live so-and-so years, so many years, and then he died. Live so-and-so many years, and then he died. And it just it's this refrain. How did that happen? And, and it wasn't like God put up, once again, a tree, and gave every new human the, the opportunity of, of, of taking that test with the tree. No. Uh, these first humans, they acted... And the consequences of what they did get passed on to all of their natural posterity. So what do we find here? We find that, that Adam is man, representative, representative man. And by the way, uh, we call him Adam. The word Adam, do you know what it means? Man. It's man. He's Man. He is the quintessential man. He is the representative man. And so, what man does, men and women will do. He is the representative. And he's the one who plunged all of humanity into sin and into death. Now, how can we read the rest of the Old Testament? From this passage, how can we read the rest of the Old Testament? What is the rest of the Old Testament? We can read it as a search. We can read it as a quest. Because this test is still there, but the representative man failed it. And and he plunged us into his condition. And the rest of the Old Testament is a search. And it's a crying out. It's a call. Will there be, can there be, another Adam, another representative man who can take the test for us as Adam did and do better than Adam did?
That's what the Old Testament is. And we will find in our survey of Old Testament covenants that they all point us forward to that second Adam, to that second man. And we know that we're on strong, firm ground here because Paul explicitly spells this out in Romans chapter 5. We read it earlier in the service. I'd like to highlight a few verses of this. It's a very dense section, maybe a little complicated. But here in 5.17, notice how he talks about one man and then the other man. What one man did and the consequences thereof. What the other man did and the consequences thereof. Verse 17, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Do you see how this functions? This is representative covenant. And the way that the representative man acts, all of the ones who are represented by him share in his defeat or share in his victory. And thanks be to God, there's a second man. That second man, Jesus Christ. And if we are in Adam, we have all that is Adam's and all the consequences thereof. We have sin. We have death. We have condemnation. But if we are in Christ by faith, then we have all that is His. We have perfect righteousness before God. We have life. We have justification, rightification, a right standing before God. Now, one of the common reactions to this idea of the covenant of life and the covenant uh, of, uh, of works is this. That's not fair. That's not fair. That somebody else's failure should affect me negatively. That's not fair. Now, that's a curious subjection. One, because that happens all the time, doesn't it? In human societies. All the time that happens. It happens in families. It's, it's frightening to think, those of us who are parents, how our decisions can affect our children positively and negatively, but not just in the family. In all human societies, the actions of one affect everyone else in that society. So we should be used to this. We shouldn't raise an objection here. But there's another serious, more serious reason why we shouldn't object to this arrangement, and that's this. If we reject this idea of having a representative before God, then we are leaving ourselves naked before God. We are leaving ourselves uh, alone before God. If we're going to say, I don't want anyone else to represent me, we haven't rescued ourselves from condemnation. We've only taken that condemnation on ourselves because we've said, I want to answer for my sins. So you see, the only thing we do by, uh, by rejecting representation by a representative man is plunge ourselves into our own 
condemnation, uh, even if we're able to rid ourselves in our minds from the condemnation that Adam brought upon us. Because we're saying, I want to stand on my own two feet before God. And by the way, that's one of the things that, that most impresses me and most convinces me and most comforts me about the Christian faith. Because if you look at other faiths, you'll find that they are formulas for us to try to stand on our own two feet before God. They say, like the covenant of work says, do this and you will live. And it's not that they're wrong. It's that we can't do it. Adam couldn't do it, and we can't do it either. Which is why this is an exceedingly bad idea to say that I will stand on my own before God and why it is an exceedingly comforting and glorious idea that God would provide a representative man in whom, with whom, we can stand before God in His perfect righteousness, in His perfect obedience. So, this objection, that's not fair, I guess, in a sense is right. It's not just fair. It's much better than fair. This is downright loving. This is absolutely merciful. This is abundantly gracious. Which is why, in all the rest of the covenants we're going to look at, we're going to be looking at what's called the covenant of grace. So let's pray. Our God, we thank You for the second one man in whom we can stand, in whom we can have life eternal, because we can share in His victory, His obedience, His righteousness. And I pray for all, hearing this text today, that we would not be so foolhardy as to to think that we could stand before You without representation but rather that we would believe in Christ, that He might be our representative man, the perfect one, the one who lived, the one who died, the one who rose again, that we might stand before You in righteousness and live forever. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.